Thanks for joining us this week for the Church at Starkey Hills podcast. Be sure to visit our website at starkey.church to find all the latest information and upcoming events. Amen. What an opportunity to worship. I hope you took advantage of that. I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 8. Now, I don't care to uh, confess it to you. Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 8 are arguably the most difficult chapters I've ever preached from in my life. Okay? And I know some of you are thinking, yeah, well, it's also the most difficult thing I've ever heard preached from in my life. But we're not alone. In fact, we'll see today, as we saw last week, even Daniel struggled with what Daniel was seeing and what Daniel would ultimately write. Because it's incredible how when God shows you the future, all right, it will rattle your cage. And when he shows you, not in real defined terms, but using um, uh, tangible things to paint a picture of other things that you may not be able to wrap your mind around, it gets a little deep, it gets a little confusing, it can get hard. And so that's where we're at, but we ain't afraid, we ain't scared, we're going to press on, right? I'll press on by myself then, okay? It's cool. I got no worries, I'll go, but I'll go where no man has gone all by myself, okay? Now you're welcome to join me, and we're in Daniel chapter 8, and the title of the message is this, First Chair, that's it. Now some of you, if you hear the words first chair, you know what I'm talking about. Others may not. Well, first chair is the prominent position in, uh, of a musical instrument, say, in a band or an orchestra. If you were in the band in high school, uh, people were always jockeying to be un, numero uno, the big kahuna, first chair. And so what you wanted to be was you wanted to be the best in, say, the horn section. You wanted to be the best in, you know, maybe the clarinet, maybe the trumpet or whatever. And so to make that happen, to determine your rank in this uh, list of horns, you, there would be a competition. Now, usually the one that's the most proficient at an instrument, the most trained, becomes the leader or the first chair. And the reason why I call the message first chair is in the world, is if the world is like a band, there's always people, individuals, who want to rise up and claim first chair. They want to be numero uno, the big kahuna. And it's been that way since time began. And we saw it last week in chapter 7, and we'll see it again this week in chapter 8. Now, as the story unfolds in Daniel 7 and Daniel 8, Daniel is writing about 600 years before the Christmas season that we now celebrate. So about 600 years before Jesus ever arrived on the planet, Daniel sees the future. That's 2,600 years before you got here, okay? <clears throat> and when Dan, what Daniel sees, he records, and what Daniel sees is amazing because it comes from God. Now, the cool thing about visions from God is they're always 100% accurate. They have to be because God only tells the truth. And they're also always 100% timely. And today, you'll see how just how timely God's Word can be. Now, in the story, Daniel has been a faithful, devoted follower of God for about 90 years. He's about 90 years old when he writes this. And he's writing about something that he saw when he was in his 60s. But for 75 of his 90 years, he's been a 1,000 miles from home. He's been captive in Babylon and then ultimately Medo-Persia, but he's been captive. Now, here's what's cool. You take a guy who's willing to live 90 years 
sold out for his God, God whispers to that guy. God has a relationship with that person. And I want to encourage you. I think what God is most tired of today is what I call hokey pokey Christianity. You know, you put your left foot in, excuse me, left, put your left foot in, put your left foot out, put it in, get the Holy Spirit, shake it all about, okay, and then you get out. Then you do the same with the right foot, you know, and maybe every now and then you hold self in, hold self out. That's how most of us live our lives in our Christian world, in and out, in and out. God is looking for people like Daniel who say, you know what? My whole hokey pokey self is up in this business, and there ain't no stepping back out. I'm right here every day, God, you can count on me just like I can count on you. And when that happens, church, listen to me. God will use you. Tell the person next to you, God wants to use you. He really does. The question is, do we really want to be used by God? And that's where we'll land today in chapter 8 of Daniel. Now, to paint a picture of tomorrow, God often uses tangible things to describe the unknowable. He does it often with mascots. We've talked about that. He picks animals or objects that we're familiar with to help us understand things that are a little bit foreign, a little bit fearful, and a little bit unknown. And so we're going to go back to a time when Belshazzar, he gets his vision, chapter 7, when Belshazzar was in his first year ruling over Babylon. Now you will remember that Nebuchadnezzar was the man. All right, He built Babylon. He was the one behind the scenes who made it all happen. Nebuchadnezzar died, and several successive leaders emerged. One of them was his son named Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was a guy who was a foreign leader. He, in other words, he was supposed to be here, but he was out on the road. We're not sure what he was doing, but while he was gone, his son Belshazzar was the leader. You will remember the story in chapter 5 of what kind of leader Belshazzar was. He was young. He had inherited all of this wealth and notoriety and this amazing kingdom. And what did he do? He threw a party. Chapter 5, the title of the message, Party Like It's B.C. 539. And you'll remember in that story that he wasn't, when he got uh, uh, under liquid courage, when he got intoxicated, he got just real stupid. And he reached into the articles that his, grand, that his uh, grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple in Israel. And he took them out of storage and he implemented them or deployed them in the party. And on that very night, you will hopefully remember the story that a hand came out of heaven and wrote on the wall. Just a hand. Nobody to go with it, just a hand. All right? And he was alarmed and frightened, rightfully so. And nobody could tell him what it meant, right? And so it, it, the party had, had, had awakened his grandmother. She's called the queen mother in Scripture. Mimi shows up. She's mad. She's been woke up from her sleep. And she says, listen, you need to call Daniel. He'll tell you what it means. Now, you will remember, if you were with us, that on the wall the words were, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. And they were Aramaic. And Daniel said, yeah, that means valued, valued, weighed, and divided. It says you've been put on the scales of, from God's perspective, and you're going down tonight. On that very day, this kingdom of Babylon that should have never been conquered, that kingdom was wiped out. It was taken captive by the Medo-Persians. Now, in chapter 7, Daniel sees this panoramic view of all that's going to take place. He sees the beast uh, of Babylon. He sees the beast of Medo-Persia. He sees the beast of Greece. He sees the beast of Rome, the Antichrist. 
He sees this really big picture that goes from the time when he's alive, 539 B.C., all the way to the end of time when Jesus returns the second time. Okay? It was really cool. Well, then chapter 8 comes along, and if you're just reading the Bible and you read chapter eight, uh, 7, you probably walk away and go, yeah, I didn't really get that. And then if you go on and read chapter 8, you're like, is it the same as chapter 7? Because it's a little different. And now I'm more confused than ever. It's really not that confusing if you pay close attention. So I need you to do that. All right? So chapter 8 was a panoramic view from Babylon to the second coming of Jesus Christ to rule and reign on this earth. Beautiful story. Now what God does for Daniel is he takes his scope and he kind of turns the lens and he narrows the focus of the vision and he's going to reach from Medo-Persia from Medo-Persia to a type of Antichrist, but not really the Antichrist. This one will come from Greece, and that's it. So we're just going to close the windows up, and we're going to look at some specifics of, of what happens on God's eternal timeline. So verse 1 and 2, it tells us the timeline, when this is going to happen. Watch this. Verse 1 and 2, it says, In the third year of, the king, of king Belshazzar's reign, chapter 7 was in the first year. Okay, so Daniel's in his 60s. He gets these two visions, and they're a couple years apart. It says, A vision appeared to me, Daniel, after the one that had appeared to me previously. And he says, In this vision, I saw myself at Susa, the citadel, which is located in the province of Elam. In the vision, I saw myself at the Ule Canal. Now, Susa, if, you're, if you read the Bible, you will have seen this before Susa and the citadel. Nehemiah opens his book and he says, I was a food tester or food taster for the king at the citadel at Susa. Okay, so it is the capital city of the Persian Empire. It would be like Washington, D.C. is to America. Not only that, it was a very ornate, a beautiful place. And so it was the vacation hotspot for the rich and famous. And that's where he sees himself. Now in this vision, vision in chapter 7, where was he? Standing on the shore of the Mediterranean Sea, watching the ocean and the beast emerge. Now he's standing in Susa on the side of a canal looking to see what he's going to see next. Now, I said the title of the message is First Chair. So just like God uses mascots and animals and tangible things to help us understand a little bit, I want to do the same thing. So we're going to liken chapter 8 to the high school band or to an orchestra. And so what I want to introduce you to first is the, the first player in the band. Why? Where did they get this? Because if you read chapter 8, it's full of horns. Okay. Now he's talking about horns on the head. But to help you see, because we don't know anybody with horns on their heads, but we know people who blow a horn. And so I want to introduce you to the first player of the horn. He's called the double horn ram. Listen to what happens now in verse... Uh, three. He says, I looked up and I saw a ram. He's standing on the canal. He said, I saw a ram with two horns. And it's standing at the canal. Its two horns were both long, but one was longer than the other. And the longer one was coming up after the shorter one. I saw that the ram was budding westward, northward, and southward, and no animal was able to stand before it. And there was none who could deliver from its power it did as it pleased, and it acted <clears throat> arrogantly. Now, who's this talking about? He's talking about a double-horned ram. Now, he says this thing had two horns. He came to play. He's wanting to be first chair. And listen, if you are a horn player and you show up at the competition with two horns to blow, you're going to win. 
okay? Gene Beffrey shows up every week to play his harmonica. He doesn't show up with a harmonica. He shows up with a whole sack full of harmonicas. If you need a G, he's got the G harmonica. You need a C, he's blowing the C harmonica. I, he probably got an LMNOP harmonica over there. He's got a sack full of them, okay? He came to be first chair in the harmonica horn department, all right? This king, this ruler, this kingdom came to play, impressive with two horns, one of them bigger, one of them smaller. Who is it? You remember in chapter 7, there was a kingdom and a leader that was kind of lopsided. You remember the bear that was bigger on one side, kind of tilted? And, and, and Scripture explained that it's the Medo-Persian Empire, that Medes, the Medes were a little smaller when they came together. The Persians were more powerful and larger. That's the same one. That's who he's talking about. So he's going to start the competition for first chair in Medo-Persia. One big horn, one little horn. Medo-Persia. Persia is the bigger, led by Cyrus. Now, I want to introduce you to the second player in the band who's going to compete for first chair. I call this one Solo Goat. Okay? Solo Goat. Now, in chapter 7, you will remember two horns. We called him the bully bear. This one we called, uh, when you get to Greece, we call him the lethal leopard. You remember he was referred to as a leopard in chapter 7. Now he's not a leopard. Now he's a goat with one horn. So look what it says on the solo goat, verse 5. He says, while I was contemplating all this, what he just saw, two-horned ram, he said, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of all the land without touching the ground. Swift, man, agile, fast. He says, and this goat had a conspicuous horn between its eyes. Solo goat. If, this would be the Grecian dynasty, led by none other than Alexander the Great. Now, you know he's first chair, because it's in his name, Alexander the Great. If my name is Joel the Great, it means I'm pretty great. It's not, but if it was, I'd be great. He shows up swift and fluid. He's faster than all of the other musicians. He's like the Eddie Van Halen on the guitar in the horn section. He's like Jimi Hendrix in the horn section. Okay, nobody can compete with this guy. He's arrogant. He's full of himself, but he's good. All right? Just got one horn ready to take on two horns, but he's ready because they're battling for first chair. They want to be numero uno, the big kahuna in the horn section, right? Now watch this. What do you do when you have a guy with two horns and a guy with one horn and they're both wanting to be the chief horn? What do you do? You have competition. So I want to introduce you to the third thing, the trio competition. Here's what happens according to Daniel's passage. He says, it came, it came to the two-horned ram, the one-horned goat did, and I had, that I had seen standing beside the canal and rushed against it with raging strength. I saw it approaching the ram and it went into a fit of rage against the ram and, it, and struck it and broke off its two horns. Sounds like it's not a good day for the ram. The ram had no ability to resist it. The goat hurled the ram to the ground and trampled it. No one could deliver the ram from its power. The competition. Now keep in mind, Babylon should have never been conquered, right? Fortified city, 80 feet tall walls, 300 feet wide at the bottom. Amazing, amazing city, right? And it was conquered. It was conquered by the Medo-Persians. The Medo-Persian Empire, if they can come in and conquer it, they should never get beat. And yet here comes Alexander the Great and conquers it. You see, there's always one greater and God always knows about it 
in advance. Now, let's talk about how this whole competition happened. So, in 12 short years, Alexander the Great, leading the Grecian dynasty, the Grecian empire and army, he conquered the whole civilized world. Do you realize how ludicrous that idea is? That he would rise up and conquer the whole world. They never lost a battle, not one. It was, it, was, it was incredible what God allowed him to accomplish. Now, if you read history, I don't, unless I'm preaching a sermon, and then I read history. But if you read history you, about Alexander the Great, it's really kind of a cool story. He had a great mom and dad. His mom and dad invested in him, encouraged him, challenged him to accomplish great things his whole life. History records that his dad, whose name was Philip of Macedon, told Alexander the Great while he was a little boy, he says, son, I want you to accomplish great things in life because you only have one life to live. So I want you to reach for the stars. Alexander later would say, tell that story. And he said, I knew I couldn't reach the stars, so I decided just to take this planet. And that's what he did. And so along with, as you read that, those stories about that, you, you, you learn more stuff. Greece. Has anybody ever been to Greece? Yeah, that's what I think figured. It's been a while since I, I would encourage you, not now, I would encourage you when you get home just to Google image Greece. It's ridiculous how beautiful that place is. It's on my list of places to go either in this life or the next. That threw some of you a curveball. One day I'm going to rule and reign with Jesus on this earth for a thousand years. And I believe ultimately this earth is part of heaven. I'm going to Greece. Okay, I'm just going to tell you that. Now I want to go. I saw those pictures. It's ridiculous how beautiful this place is. How did it get its beginning? In, in this passage, Daniel saw 2,600 years ago that Greece would be called the goat with a big horn, right? How did Greece get its beginning? A few colonists who had a Grecian philosophy wanted to start a new nation with their new ideas, sophisticated and, and bright, okay? Just like the colonists, the pilgrims came here, okay, to start the United States of America. They didn't know where to begin. They didn't know where to place their feet and say, this is where, this is the headquarters, this is where we're going to begin our Grecian philosophy of life. So they go to an oracle. You know what an oracle is? A seer. You know, like a hippie smoking weed with an eight ball, okay? And they paid him some money on how they could figure out where to start Greece. The oracle gave them a goat and said, follow the goat and the goat will take you to where you're supposed to go. They ultimately land, ultimately land on this place that's called Aegea. You know what Aegea means? Goat. Goat city. And to this very day, if you look it up, if you Google it, get your globe out, if you look at the body of water that surrounds Aegea, it's called the Aegean Sea. Goat Sea. God said, Greece, you're a goat and Greece is a goat. I want you to know today, whatever God calls you, that's what you're going to be. If He says you're a squirrel, you're a squirrel. If He says you're a goat, you're a goat. Whatever He names you. Now, here's the good part of that. As children of God, He has given us a name. Children of the Most High God. That's who we are. Okay? Now, for Alexander the Great, it was a goat. It was the big horn on the goat. Not only that, Josephus 
who is one of the greatest Jewish historians in all of mankind. He wrote about the history of this whole thing of, of Greece taking captive Medo-Persia, about Alexander the Great. He tells this story in, in A.D. 94, so 94 years roughly, 60 years after Jesus went back to heaven. He writes this. He said, this is how Alexander conquered the, uh, the Medo-Persians. You ready? He had a vision. Alexander had a vision. He fell asleep and he had a dream. And in his dream, this guy shows up wearing a purple robe. And he started telling him about his future. He woke up. He did not know what it meant. And so years go by and he's captivated most of the world. And he finds himself, Alexander the Great, with his, with his army traveling through Jerusalem. One of the priests... One of the Jewish priests heard he was coming to town, and he wanted to go talk to him. So what did he do? He put on his priestly garment. You know what color it was? Purple. He meets him on the street, and he has something in his hand. And he goes to Alexander the Great, and before he says a word, Alexander the Great says, I know you. You were in my dream. And the priest looks at him, and he says, well, I know you too. And he had in his hand a copy of the book of Daniel. And he opened it to chapter 7 and 8, and he said, God already told us you were coming. You are right here in this book. And he showed him where God had prophesied that this horn would rise up and defeat the Medo-Persians. And he said, and I'm telling you, you're supposed to go conquer the Medo-Persians. Now, it was so moving to Alexander the Great, he joined the priest in a worship service of God. And history under Josephus says that he realized... There's one, in that moment, he realized there was one greater than who he is. He left that meeting, put his army together, 35,000 soldiers, and attacked the Medo-Persians. The Medo-Persians had 250,000 soldiers, and Alexander the Great and his little army won. Why? Because God knows the beginning from the end. And God has a plan, which I'm going to show you in a minute, with every little minute detail in everything that happens on this planet. Some of it is ugly and we can't understand. God uses it for His plan. Some of it is beautiful and indescribable. God uses it for His plan. Now, was Alexander the Great, was he a God-fearer? Was he a believer in God? We don't, we don't know, but he was moved by that. You know, always famous people are Christian. You know, Elvis was a Christian. Did you know that? Just talk to the right people. Yeah, Elvis. If you love Elvis, yeah, Elvis was a Christian. Thank you very much. All right? If you keep looking, you'll say, Prince, you know, the one who died not long ago. Yeah, he was a Christian. You listen to his songs, it wasn't praise and worship. Okay? And now, of course, who's the famous Christian today? Kanye. Are they Christians? I don't know. Was Alexander the, the Great a Christian? I don't know. But I know this, that God reaches from heaven and he touches lives and introduces himself to people and people do with him what they desire to do. Now, so Alex, Alexander the Great, he got to lead, took over the whole world in 12 years. What's the significance of that? You ready? He brought into place a police force for safety, a food supply to sustain his kingdom. But one of the coolest things he did was he realized if he's going to be able to communicate his leadership to the new world that, he's now, that he now owns, they better all speak the same language, right? So he wrote a one-world language. That's cool. You know what it's called? Koine 
Greek. Why is that so important? If you go to seminary, you decide you want to be a preacher and you go to seminary, guess what language you take? Greek. The New Testament, the story of Jesus, the story of the church, the whole New Testament. You know what it's written in? Koine, Alexander the Great, Greek. Because God used somebody like Alexander the Great to provide a world language so he could communicate redemption through his son. Don't you tell me God ain't got a plan. And he uses, uh, he uses the, the, the weirdest things to accomplish everything that he wants to accomplish. So Alexander the Great, he died early. A combination that some say malaria with complications because he had an insatiable appetite for alcohol. Some say he had other diseases, STDs and different things because he had, led, he had led up to that point a life of debauchery. He died at like 32 or 33 years old. So what do you do when the king of the world, the first chair of the whole world, the numero uno horn player of the world, when he's dying, what do you do? How do you carry that on? Well, let's see. I want to introduce you to the four horn band, okay? There's nobody going to replace Alexander the Great as a horn blower, but we can put a band together, make it sound pretty good. So he put four horns together. Look what happens. The male goat, Alexander the Great, acted even more arrogantly, but no sooner had the large horn become strong than it was broken. He died. And there arose four conspicuous horns in its place, extending toward the four winds of the sky. The four horned band. Now, everything we're talking about here is historical record. It's very real people. Alexander the Great was a very real person. Greece and the Grecian dynasty, very, very real. The Medo-Persians and Cyrus, very, very real people existed. The Babylonian Empire, they've exhumed a bunch of that. So it's ridiculous how much they've dug up for a long time. Liberals would say, yeah, it's just fable. It's, it's not history. And then they start digging stuff up and they get to eat crow. And they say, well, I guess you were right. That was true. But this over here is not true. And then they dig something up. Well, I guess that's true. But this is not true. And then they find the, the, the scrolls and they say, well, okay, I guess that's true. Listen, if it's in this book, it's true. 100% of the time from this moment for all of eternity, this truth will not go against itself. It will never be found false. Just like these four horns. Four very real leaders emerged. So, Alexander the Great is on his deathbed. He says, I want my kingdom to continue, but there ain't nobody like me. I mean, my name is Alexander the Great. Okay? So, he divided his kingdom among four of his generals. And he brought them in and he said, each one of you are going to have a quadrant of my dynasty. Very real people. Their names, Cassander, Lysimachus, Ptolemy, and Seleucus. Okay? Try to say those quickly. Okay? Seleucus is the one that's most important to Scripture and to us. Seleucus is the general who had the responsibility over Macedonia, over Jerusalem, over Israel. He'll come into play later. But here's the thing. You would think a world empire divided among four individuals, you would think that everybody can just be happy with what they've got, right? That's not true. Did you know anytime you have over one person, there will be a time and a place when there will be a battle for who is going to be in first chair? Do you know that? Let me give you a real good example. It's not in my case, but I've heard of marriages, okay, 
where there's days when it arises this moment when somebody decides who's in charge. And the woman wants to be in charge and the man wants to be in charge because they want to play first chair. I know nobody in here knows what I'm talking about, okay? But it's real, all right? And it came, it happened in Genesis, okay? It all started in Genesis. And then you get over in the New Testament, and I know it's real because the New Testament warns about it. It says, men, excuse me, women, this is the most hated word and verse of the whole Bible. It says, women, I want you to be submissive to your husbands. Women, just own that. If you don't like that verse, say amen. I'll say it for you, amen, because I know you're thinking it. Okay, we in church, all right? But what they do is they fail to realize that, and so do the men, that there's another verse closely connected to it. It says, men, I want you to love your wives like Christ loved the church, and he gave his life for it. The women got the big end of the stick all they have to do is submit. The men, we're supposed to die for our wives. Okay? It would be a good time right there to be born a woman if you ask me. Okay? Now, it's always the case. Whether it's a man and a woman, you put a business together, you have two or three people, at some point somebody's got to make a decision. Now, here's the thing. You take four leaders, military generals, you better believe out of them, somebody's going to emerge and want to be first chair. Let me introduce you to player number five. This is who I call the one horn solo artiste, okay? He said, I got this. You're looking for somebody with a horn? I'm your horn guy, okay? I will be the best horn you've ever experienced in your existence. Watch what happens. It says, from one of them, from one of the four horns, the four quadrants of, of the kingdom of Alexander the Great, it says, came a small horn, just a little horn. Now, let me pause right here. I'm going to let you in on something. This is not the Antichrist as we saw in chapter 7, but it is a type of Antichrist. It is a shadow or an example of the Antichrist, okay? But I want you to see he shows up very small. You know, the enemy, from, from the time he was in heaven and he convinced a third of the angels that he had a better plan than God, to the time that he was in the garden and he convinced Adam and Eve that he had a better plan than God, to this very day, the reason that we fail and the reason we often get entrapped to repetitive sins and a sinful condition and a sinful nature is because when he shows up, he shows up very small, very insignificant, very subtle without consequences. But I want you to see what happens. It says, but it grew to be very big. Isn't that the way the enemy does? He shows up little and he grows to be very big. Toward the south and the east and toward the beautiful land, which is the holy land, one horn solo artist. Now, this person comes in and he wants to be first chair and he rises up out of these four kingdoms and he's going to be responsible for desolating the temple, okay, for defiling the things of God. Now, I want you to understand the difference between chapter 7 and chapter 8. Chapter 7 refers to a beast that we find out in chapter 7 is the Antichrist. The Antichrist comes at the very end, right? As Jesus returns for the church, and then ultimately as Jesus returns to rule and reign on this earth. Okay? Now, that's the Antichrist. This is not the Antichrist. The Antichrist, you will remember, came from ten, you remember the ten horns? The ten diadem? What those are are the ten nation confederacy of of Rome, of Western Europe. That's where he'll come from. This is not the Antichrist. He doesn't come from Rome. He doesn't come from Europe. 
He comes from the Seleucid Grecian Empire. Okay? This is not the Antichrist. He is a type of Antichrist. He is a foreshadow. He is a, a representative, but only a small picture of what the real Antichrist is going to be about. Now, God is saying to Daniel, I told you all this was going to take place, and it did. Now watch this. He's going to tell us something else in verse 10 through 12. He says, so it grew so big. Okay, this is, this is the, uh, not the Antichrist, but the type of Antichrist. This person, this little horn that got so big out of the Seleucid Grecian Empire that it reached the army of heaven. And it brought about the fall of some of the army and some of the stars to the ground where it trampled them. It also acted arrogantly against the prince of the army from whom the daily sacrifice was removed and whose sanctuary was thrown down. Verse 12. The army was given over along with the daily sacrifice. In the course of his sinful rebellion, it hurled truth to the ground and enjoyed success. So, Daniel sees in vision chapter 8 that this little horn man, this little guy rises up to be first chair and he starts accomplishing great success. Now in the process, he's not, not just satisfied attacking the flesh world. He's not just satisfied attacking uh, the Jews. He's not just satisfied owning this world. This first chair wants to own all of existence. He attacks the spiritual dimension. You know in the Bible it says we battle not against flesh and blood, but we battle against principalities and powers of the air. Now, I want you to understand this is not all there is to existence. What we see is only part of the story. There is a spiritual dimension of our existence that goes on every day. The Bible says we often entertain angels unaware. Did you know that? Angels are watching your life some days. That's good. Some days you wish you could turn them off, right? Okay, we entertain them unaware. We have guardian angels looking after us. Isn't that good news, right? But the reason we have guardian angels is because we have fallen angels who are demons who want to destroy us every day. And I want you to know that if God removed his protective angels from our lives, we would, we would play right into the enemy's hands. But what happens is this guy, he says, I want to be over it all. And so he attacks the spiritual realm. I mean, this, this, he's first chair. He's the real deal. Now, here's the question. Who is he? He's a very real man who emerged from the Seleucid Grecian Empire. And he showed up in 175 to 164 B.C. About 175 years before Jesus got here, this guy showed up as a little horn ruler. Now listen what he did. You remember when it said right there that, that he will uh, uh, cast out truth, that's God's word. He will take away the sacrifice. Everything that the Jewish people stood for, he stood against. History says that he went in and he um, sacrificed a pig on the altar of God. The pig, the unclean animal, sacrificed it on the altar of God. He made all the Jews incorporate pork into their daily living diet. He instituted a law 
that if you were a Jew and you circumcised your son according to the law of the Old Testament, there was a death penalty of you and your son. He murdered over 80,000 Jews, enslaved tens of thousands of others. He stood adamantly opposed to God, the Word of God, the people of God, and the temple of God. But the good news, there, a day arose when some traditional Jews decided, hey, are, are we not the children of God? I, I, thought we were, I thought God was on our side. He's waiting for us to rise up. So under a guy named Judas Maccabeus, they revolted against this Antiochus for Epiphanes. That was his name. There's a good one. You having a son? Don't name him Antiochus. Okay, it's too hard to spell in kindergarten. Antiochus for Epiphanes. All right? Judas Maccabeus put his troops together and says, we're fighting back. And so one little battle at a time, they begin to revolt. And they won back Jerusalem. Where do you find this? In the Bible? No. You find it in extra biblical, biblical writings. It's not canonized scripture. It's one and two Maccabees. It's found in the Catholic Bible. It's found that you can buy these books, okay? And it's a historical record. It's great history and a questionable theology, all right? And, and so, but in it, it tells us about this revolt. Now, we're going somewhere. I'm going to tell you, God's Word is always timely and it's always perfect. So what happens? They rise up and they take back Jerusalem. They re-inhabit um, the temple. They restore it. And, and, and now they're Jews, and they're, they're liberated, and they have the temple back. What, what's the Jew going to do? We're going to throw a party, because that's what Jews do. So they establish a feast, okay? It's really cool to mark this day on our Jewish calendar. We're going to have a feast, and it's called the Feast of Lights, because we're back. We got it back. So they took the menorah, okay? And they filled the basin at the bottom with oil, and they trimmed the wicks of the menorah. But there was one problem. The feast was supposed to last for eight days. They only could find enough oil to burn for a day. So they filled up what, the, the tank with what oil they had for a day, trimmed the wicks, and ignited the menorah for an eight-day feast. And on one day's oil, the menorah burned for eight days. And they celebrated again this miracle of God. You say, yeah, so what does that have to do with us? Okay. You know what this Feast of Lights is called on the Jewish calendar today? Hanukkah. That's right. And you know when Hanukkah was? Thursday of this past week. Now, I didn't schedule to preach on Daniel chapter 8 for Hanukkah, okay? It just showed up because God told me to preach this week on Daniel chapter 8. I want you to know when I tell you something from God's Word, it's true. And it's so true, those stories are so real, what God has done with His people, that they still celebrate that victory in the Maccabean re revolt from years and years, over 2,000 years ago. They still have it on the calendar and celebrate it every year. Now, here's what I want you to know. It doesn't matter if it is the Antichrist, whether it is a type of Antichrist, or anybody else that wants to rise up against God and rise up against the children of God, I want you to know you don't have to worry about it because God is always on His throne. God is always 
large and in charge of everything. And if you are a child of God, it doesn't mean you're not going to go through hard times. You will. It's part of how God develops us. But God ultimately wins in the end. Now, this story's not over, just like it wasn't over in chapter 7. I love this about God's Word. He doesn't stop and leave us hanging in defeat. I want to introduce you to the sixth party in the battle for first chair. Let me introduce you to the conductor of the horn section. The maestro of the horns. I just love this. Watch this. He says now in verse 15, While I, Daniel, was watching the vision, I sought to understand it. Now one who appeared to be a man was standing before me. This is in the Ulay Canal. Then I heard a human voice coming from between the banks of the Ulay. This one that looked like a human being now spoke like a human being. Insignificant so far, but watch this. It called out. It said, Gabriel, enable this person to understand the vision. The conductor, the maestro of the horn section. Who is this human-looking, uh, human-speaking being in the Ulay Canal? It's the pre-incarnate Jesus. You ready? Now watch this. If you've heard of Jesus being the incarnate God, okay, where do those words come from? Well, in the word carnate is the word carna. If you go to Kroger and get chili con carna, that means it's chili with meat in it, right? If you go to the Mexican restaurant and you get carne asada, you get in a Mexican dish with some meat on it, okay? So if you're a vegetarian, don't order that, all right? Now, Jesus is the incarnate God. Jesus, when he came to this earth, he was God with a bod, all right? He was flesh God, right? That's what it means. In the Old Testament, many times, Jesus shows up before he ever came as a baby in a manger. Jesus shows up in the Old Testament as a pre-incarnate, okay? A pre-demonstration of God in the flesh, all right? Now, maybe you say, well, that's a little stretch because all it says is a dude looked like a dude and he spoke with the voice of a man. And that's all I got, okay? Not convinced? What does he do when he gets here? This voice from this man in the Ulay Canal speaks to Gabriel. You know who Gabriel is? One of the only two angels in all of God's counsel that have a name. Gabriel is considered the most powerful angel in all of the angelic realm. You say, okay, that's cool. I believe that. Well, whoever this voice is speaking is commanding Gabriel. Let me tell you who it ain't. You. Let me tell you who it ain't. Me. Let me tell you who does not command Gabriel. Any human being except part of the Trinity of God who creates and sustains everything in existence. And that one God-man whose name is Jesus shows up in the river and he says, Hey, Gabriel, we, came, we didn't come to play. I want you to tell him what's going on. I want you to enlighten him and help him understand the vision. Now, this is so, I love this. Because so far, Daniel's standing on the shore of the canal, and now he sees this kind of Jesus-y guy showing up, and now he's got the most powerful angel, and they're over there. That's cool. But the only thing worse than Jesus and his most powerful angel 
being over there is what happens next. He comes over here. Watch this. He goes on, he says, so he approached the place where I was standing. This is not good. He says, as he came, I felt terrified. Yeah, yeah, you did. And I fell flat on the ground. Yeah, you will. Then he said to me, understand, son of man, that the vision pertains to the time of the end. As he spoke with me, I fell into a trance with my face to the ground. But he touched me and he stood me upright. Then he said, I'm going to inform you about what will happen in the latter time of wrath. For the vision pertains to the appointed time of the end. Now, here it is. Jesus shows up out there with Gabriel out there. Now all of a sudden, they're right here. The appropriate response when Jesus shows up in your world with Gabriel the angel is terrified on your face. From time to time, you'll hear somebody say, well, I've had a hard life, can't wait to get to heaven because I'm going to ask some questions. <laughs> no, you ain't going to ask no questions. Okay, you're going to be on your face is where you're going to be. Okay, the only question if you had one is, is there any place up here I can get some fresh underwear? Okay, because you're not going to be, now you can ask questions now. Ask him all the questions you want. God's okay with our questions. He's big enough to handle all of our questions. But when we stand before Jesus at the end of time, we will be on our face terrified because of the righteousness and the holiness and the perfection of God in our presence. See, so we need to get that. We need to have a reverential fear for a good, good God. Now, the beauty of it is, God, excuse me, Jesus and Gabriel have every right to just leave Daniel laying in the dirt in a trance, just like he just like the rest of them. Let's go on back home, okay? That's not what he does. He lifts him up. This, this righteous. Jesus, human being, and Gabriel the angel, they pick him up in his fear. It's not the only time it happens. It is, it's always how it happens. Watch what happens in Ezekiel chapter 1, the last verse of chapter 1. This is like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds after the rain. This was the appearance of the surrounding brilliant light, and it looked like the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I threw myself face down, moving, and I heard a voice speaking. Now we move to chapter 2. He says, and he said to me, son of man, stand on your feet, and I will speak with you. Isn't that good? This God that is so big that his presence in our midst causes us to collapse in fear. That same vast, enormous, indescribable God has a tenderness about him that he'll reach down and pick us up and say, I need to talk to you. Man, it makes my skin crawl to think about a God so big who would choose to love somebody like me so much. You think, well, that's kind of isolated. No, I'll show you another one. Revelation, John the Revelator, the beloved disciple. In chapter 1, he's on the Isle of Patmos after they tried to boil him in oil and he wouldn't die. They put him on the rocky island of Patmos to receive the last book in the Bible, the revelation of the future. And Jesus shows up, and he describes him, and it's beautiful. And he heard his voice, and it was like rushing waters. And it's really, man, it's just blowing him away. He says, I looked to see who was speaking. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell down at his feet 
as though I were dead. But he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first, I am the last. And the one who lives, I was dead, but look, now I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and of Hades or hell. That's our God, church. That's the one who came 2,000 years ago on the first Christmas morning wrapped in swaddling clothes to save you, to rescue us from our condition. So what happened to Antiochus for Epiphanes? The little horn that got so great that hated on God. I want to show you in Scripture what happens. He says, let's go to the next one there, guys. He tells them, he says, this little horn will become great and he will come to an end. Don't have it? It will come to an end, but it will not be at the hands of a man. It will not be at the hands of a man. You know how Antiochus for Epiphanes died? He's first chair, man. He has risen to the top. He is conquering the world. And out of nowhere, he died because he was stricken with an intestinal disorder and died suddenly. Are you ready? Here it is. It doesn't matter what horn man blows. It doesn't matter how great of a first chair an individual is. When the maestro or the conductor gets his little baton out, everything changes. You see the horns play, they do an upbeat, a downbeat. They cut off and they begin all to the movement of a small stick in the hands of the maestro or the conductor. And when God said, that's enough of that chapter, he took his baton and he touched the intestines of Antiochus for Epiphanes. And he was no more. So what does that have to do with you? This whole chapter 8, chapter 7, what does that have to do with us? You ready? It's good. It's really good. Chapter 7 was a picture, a panoramic view from Babylon to Jesus' return. Chapter 8 is a focused view of what it looks like in the world we live in when, when types of the Antichrist show up. And what it's pointing to is the fact that you, tell the person next to you, he's talking to you and me. We find ourselves suspended on God's eternal timeline between Antiochus for Epiphanes and the Antichrist and the return of the Christ Jesus. So what will we do with our life in alignment with God's storyline? Sometimes I think we just need to inhale really big and before we exhale ask God a question. God this is my last exhale of breath. Has my life been satisfying to you, the one who has given me all of those breaths, all of those minutes, and all of those days? It's probably not going to be our last breath. So it means he'll give other breaths, other minutes, 
other days. Our prayer should be, God, help me utilize the rest of my breath, the rest of my minutes and days in alignment with your amazing storyline. Babylon, history. Medo-Persia, history. Greece, history. The church, we're in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, the church age. It's not history, but it's writing history. And God wants to include you. You, you, individually, you. God wants to write his story with you in it. I'm humbled by that. I'm perplexed by that. I sure am excited about that. I want you to bow your heads. Maybe you're here and you've heard of God, you know of God, but you don't know God. I want you to know there's one way and one way only to ever know God. He made it happen through Jesus, His Son. And maybe you're here today and you have never received Jesus into your life to save you and to be adopted into God's forever kingdom. There's a moment in every individual's life where we simply feel invited into the presence of God and he says I love you right where you are but I love you too much to leave you there I want to be your God I want you to be my child and what do we do we simply realize God I know I'm a sinner I repent I'm sorry I changed my mind and direction about my sin I thank you God that you made a way for me to be forgiven made a way for me to be receivable to you through Jesus, your son, and what he did on a cross, and the fact that he rose from the dead. I want Jesus to come into my life to be my Savior and to be the Lord of my life from this day throughout all of eternity. I allow you, I invite you, I receive you to be my King, my Master, my Savior, and my Lord. Thank you for hearing my sinner's prayer. Thank you for saving somebody like me. And now others that are here, we know Him. We're children of God. Take that breath and ask God how He could use the breaths of the future to use you more powerfully in His kingdom agenda. Lord God, we just thank You for being such a good God. I thank You for these very difficult chapters found in Daniel not difficult for you, just difficult for shallow minds like mine. But I trust every word of it. I want to build my eternal condition based on the truth of your word. I thank you for a man like Daniel who stood the test of time, who was all in with you, a picture of a relationship with you, our most high God, and how sweet it can be. God, if there's somebody that needs to be saved today or maybe they just prayed that prayer, I pray that they will make it public today, that they will come to me or one of our leaders and say, hey, I just received Christ into my life for salvation. God, if there's others that just need to move uh, off, of, uh, off of the flat line of Christianity into a new part of their journey with you, that they would come to this altar and simply lay it at the altar in prayer. We give you this time. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. We're going to sing one closing song.
We hope that God spoke to you through this message. If you enjoyed the message, be sure to subscribe to our weekly podcast and visit our website at sturkey.church to find all the latest information and upcoming events. Be sure to join us again next week. Until then, may God bless you.